<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup of news and a selection of full stories, plus conversations with reporters and editors from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Beijing. First, our weekly review of business stories from Caixin and beyond. The China-backed Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank approved its first equity investment, which will see $150 million being channeled to a fund focusing on infrastructure development in India. The deal marks the AIIB's first equity investment since it began operating in January 2016. It has so far approved 16 projects worth around $2.5 billion in total, mostly in the clean energy and transportation sectors, but the other 15 were funded through loans. China approved imports of new varieties of genetically modified corn and soybeans, widening the door for genetically engineered crops developed by U.S. agrochemical giants Dow Chemical and Monsanto. The approval is part of a commitment made by Chinese President Xi Jinping at a meeting in March with U.S. President Donald Trump at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort. The leaders agreed to a 100-day plan to boost bilateral trade. The agreement approves imports of 16 varieties of GMO crops, including corn, soybeans, cotton, canola, and beets. Global toy maker Mattel announced a new joint venture to create play clubs in China with private equity giant Fosun Group, extending a series of tie-ups as it increases its technology-flavored expansion in the market. They said the facilities will, quote, incorporate hands-on play experiences as part of educational services, unquote. The maker of Barbie dolls and Hot Wheels said it aims to boost its China sales by three to four times their current levels by 2020 and will try to replicate its model in the fast-growing India market. Police have identified a 22-year-old man as the sole suspect in an explosion at a Jiangsu province kindergarten that killed eight and injured 65 last week. The suspect was also killed in the blast set off with an explosive device he made at home in Fengxian County. Investigators from China's Ministry of Public Security in Beijing and local police did not give a motive, but the Chinese words for death, demise, and perish were found written on walls in the suspect's rented home near the Chuangxian Kindergarten in Fengxian County. Thanks, Ada. That's a really horrifying story. Let's turn now to some of the editors at Caixin Global to chat about some more of the week's stories. First up is senior editor Doug Young in Beijing. So, Doug... Shanghai landmark shops for new meaning with overhaul plan. Oh, I don't quite get this. What is the story? 
The story is that there's this big, famous department store in Shanghai called the Shanghai Number One Department Store. It's not a very creative name, but that's what they call it. And this store used to be the biggest department store in all Asia. It was at the cutting edge of retail for a long time after it opened, and it was really cutting edge stuff, probably through the 1990s.、Uh, so we're talking a store that was built in 1936. So it had quite a good run, but now, of course, it's facing a lot of competition from other department stores. That's sort of what started happening in the 90s. China started building a lot of other newer stores, and now, of course, it's coming under threat from e-commerce. So what happened in the news is that they're going to close this place down and do a major facelift on it to try and bring people back in because right now its parent company is still earning profits, but their revenue is going down, and I suspect business at this store is probably going down too. Although they don't break out individual stores. So how are they going to revamp it, and do you think it's going to it's going to work? Well, that's the big question, and they haven't really given us detailed plans about what they're doing.、Uh, they've given a few details. One is that they're actually combining this with another old building. These are all 1930s buildings. They're very Art Deco. They're very nice, and it's in a very heavily pedestrian area. It's it's a very tourist area for Shanghai. They've said they're going to connect it up with an adjacent building with skywalks. You can walk above the city. Feel and then there's apparently going to be a big roof garden in there. They're going to put in an international food court. So you know, I mean, these are two things that sound like they could bring people back. I mean, part of the problem is that area has developed into a real touristy area, and it used to be, you know, Chinese didn't used to do tourism, so it used to be a very local shopping population, and now all the people in that area are tourists, or a lot of them are. So they're still trying to sell sort of ordinary daily wares to tourists who aren't really coming to Shanghai to buy a new shirt or. Parachutes or whatever department store would usually sell. So if they can reposition it, you know, to be more suited to tourists, which you know some of these touches—the international food court, skywalks—they've、uh, said they're going to put in a bookstore, which seems a little bit like a throwback. But you know, if they can do that sort of stuff, really reposition it as, as like a destination rather than a, a place where you go to buy things, it's possible it could do okay. Yeah, you know, all of it will lie in the execution. So, Doug, you actually you lived in Shanghai for years, yeah?、Uh, did you actually ever visit the number one department store? I think I went in there once. I actually asked a few of my friends. One of them works at a venture capital company now, and he said he, he's lived in Shanghai for five years and never once set foot in there. Then I asked one of my older friends, who's he's about sixty seven, sixty eight, and he said. You know the place used to be just the height of fashion. He was saying the thing he remembered was、uh, it apparently had China's first escalator, and he said they they loved to go there as kids and go up and down the escalator. But then I asked him, has he been there any time recently? And he said he hasn't been there in more than a decade. And the one time I went and I spent maybe ten or fifteen seconds inside and then turned around and went out. Next up is Li Rongde, who is a general news reporter at Caixin, and she has a story about the brain drain in China's Rust Belt. So, Rongde, a brain drain haunts China's Rust Belt. Is he right、uh, that 
You see, over half of fresh graduates from the Northeast opt to work outside of their home provinces, despite government perks that are intended to help retain talent. So, what is the story here? You know, the story is based on the a report from a government think tank, basically suggesting the three regions in the Northeast. Namely, the Liaoning Province, Jilin, and Heilongjiang, continue to lose talents, basically college graduate, to other regions. For example, only forty-seven percent of the students from the three regions stay or going back to find a job there, versus national level of around seventy-five percent. So, describe for us China's Rust Belt. In China, the Rust Belt basically referred to the three regions in the northeast. As I said, is Liaoning, Jilin, and Heilongjiang province. These three regions used to be China's、uh, economic powerhouse,、uh, heavy industry, machinery. But now they falling behind over the past three decades in China's push for economic market-oriented、uh, reform. So, why is the brain drain happening in these areas? The answer is very simple. We don't know. But there are some、uh, macroeconomic data. For instance, in Liaoning Province, the economy has actually contracted by two and a half percent last year, and it grew by two point four percent in the first three months of this year, far below the national average of six point nine percent. And the other two provinces think is much、uh, better shape, but their growth is still below the national average. And what's the government doing to try to address the problem? You know, the central government has been pushing for revitalization of the three northeastern regions since 2004, but so far, you know, what we have seen did not seems to have、uh, matched the goal. And the reason some analysts say is because all the state-owned companies in the region have problems in bureaucracy, red tape, and they also don't have the innovation we see elsewhere in China. And now for our selection of important stories from Caixin Global for the week, we'll hear how a poorly done Chinese remake of a popular Japanese television drama has drawn fire from audiences in China. We'll tell you how social fitness apps and a growing middle class have sparked interest in running in China, prompting many cities to hold marathons. We'll look into the ongoing crackdown against celebrity gossip on the wildly popular app Weixin or, or WeChat. We'll examine China's crayfish craze and how farming the little lobsters, as they're called in Chinese, has become a massive and growing industry. And we'll hear how Chinese netizens are angry that the ubiquitous Xinhua Dictionary is now charging for word lookups on its smartphone app. From business and tech, viewers wince as beloved Japanese TV drama gets tasteless remake in China. By April Ma, Beijing. Adapted from a widely acclaimed Japanese series of tales about a late-night snack bar and its offbeat patrons, the Chinese version of Midnight Diner is being widely criticized by reviewers as both bland and unpalatable. Appalled by its failure to weave traces of actual Chinese life into the 40-episode TV series now airing nationwide, Chinese audiences feel detached and perplexed watching the story they've grown so fond of in its native Japanese. 
the Chinese remake of Midnight Diner or Xinya Shokudo in Japanese, a four-season drama about a homey eatery and the life-size troubles of its regulars, has been slapped with a score of 2 out of 10 on Doban, China's leading film review site, an uncommonly low mark. This is a humiliating contrast to the rave reviews for the original rated 9 on Doban. Audiences have rejected the mimicking of the Japanese production, down to the characters' attire, their dishes of choice, the kitchen bar, a restaurant layout common in Japan but seldom seen in China, and criticized the overall irrelevance of the people and setting to Chinese lives. What a disgraceful flop, said viewer Chen Xiaofeng on Douban. A midnight diner in China is nowhere like this. Chen added, In reality, the owner would be a rugged guy from the Northeast, barbecuing leeks and pig kidneys. His clients would be a bunch of entrepreneurs dreaming up the next fundraising round and retired old men lecturing on China's military sway while aunties rancorously complain about their daughters-in-law. Audience criticisms are being echoed by the television industry itself, members of which say that even chicken soup for the soul stories can suffer from culture shock. It seems the producers were not diligent enough in devising moderations for Chinese audiences, a person familiar with cross-border film and TV adaptations told Caixin. The industry source said that usually rights purchasers are given a fair degree of freedom in adaptations and are not restrained in details such as the main actor's Japanese-style robe, which puts him embarrassingly out of place. If they were restricted from straying from the Japanese version, it would have been a bad idea to buy the rights from the start. Midnight Diner, whose Chinese adaptation rights were required by state-controlled TV and film producer HLBN, has also nauseated viewers with its flagrant product placements, most notoriously plugging cooking oil and online real estate platform Anjuke, where a character is a hard-working employee, and a brand of instant noodles which the restaurant owner goes to lengths to hawk as a delicacy. As a nation with diverse cuisines and high gastronomic standards, Chinese have also taken issue with foods that do not get typical Chinese mouths watering, such as octopus sausage, rolled omelets, and rice topped with smoked salmon. In China, favorite night fares might include spicy crayfish, lamb kebabs, grilled fish, and cold noodles. The ads are about as localized as this series gets, said a user on Weibo. No one goes out to eat instant noodles for a midnight snack. What an insult to the boundless selection of barbecues and stir-fries, he remarked. Business and tech. Advertisers, fitness app makers, laugh their way to finish line as marathon mania grips China. By Liao Yuanxian and Tang Jingxuan. With his lanky frame, salt-and-pepper hair, and measured speech, Ji Quanxue seems at first glance more scholarly than athletic. But the 47-year-old, who works at a sports marketing firm in Beijing, has 10 marathons under his belt. I started running in 2013, Ji said. At the time, I played tennis, but I always felt I lacked strength, so I started running. I started off doing 5 kilometers and then 10, and then later when I saw that signups were open for the Beijing Marathon, I decided to give it a shot. At the time, the 42.195-kilometer Beijing Marathon didn't have strict entry requirements for participants, so even someone like Ji, who had never completed even a half-marathon, could take part. After the marathon, all my muscles were stiff and I couldn't lift my legs, he recalls. After the first attempt, Ji was hooked. In 2014, he set a goal of running 2014 kilometers in a single year, and has since participated in races outside of his home city, like the Xiamen Marathon and Ningbo Marathon. These days, I wear through two pairs of running shoes a year, he said. Millions of running enthusiasts across China share a similar story, swept up in a nationwide marathon craze. 
In 2013, 39 marathons and other running competitions were registered with the Chinese Athletic Association, which governs athletic events in the country. In 2016, the number of registered events was 328, attended by over 2.8 million participants. The New Religion of the Middle Class China's expanding middle class is a major driver of this marathon fever. In many countries, competitive running becomes a popular hobby when the per capita gross domestic product, or GDP, approaches $8,000, according to Yi Jiandong, a sports researcher at Peking University. When people get richer, they start looking for masochistic physical activities, Yi said. In 2014, the year China's running craze got into full swing, the country's per capita GDP was 7,683, according to World Bank figures. The integration of social media with gadgets like smartwatches has also been crucial in popularizing marathons in China, sports organizer Hu Dong Sports General Manager He Yan told Caixin. Once pedometer apps appeared on the market, everyone started showing off their step counts on social media, He said. Running is the new religion of the middle class, Phoenix TV sports commentator Zhang Feng wrote in a recent essay. No one remembers the names of the medalists, he wrote. The real champions are in WeChat friend circles, where the number of users who have logged more than 50,000 steps using the pertometer apps has risen. Exercise also gives runners opportunities to express themselves as consumers. The solo middle-aged jogger in Asics running shoes and Under Armour shorts is now a common sight in China's urban parks. On weekends, runners show up at competitions across the country decked in branded gear. But the attraction is more than superficial. Many people may start running in order to show off, Hudong Sports He said, but after running for some time, they truly experience the benefits of exercise. When Zhang, who works at the same marketing firm as Ji, started running three years ago, her motivation was impure, she told Caixin jokingly. She joined her university classmates' running group because she liked the design of the running jersey given to every member by the corporate sponsor, Zhang said. Her motives may have been impure, but Zhang, who had previously never thought about how to run, quickly fell into step. Influenced by her peers, she began signing up for competitions and has completed two half-marathons in recent months. A Marathon in Every City In October 2014, China State Council stopped requiring organizers of commercial and mass sports events to seek official approval. Local governments responded by rushing to host marathons in hopes of boosting their tourism and service industries. Marathons on their own don't bring in much money through registration fees. Wang Jing, director of the sports investment fund, the Arena Capital, told Caixin that it's the revenue generated by runners buying equipment, using social media, and traveling that really makes the events attractive to businesses and governments. A marathon's financial model is actually the least healthy out of all sporting events because its costs are the highest, Wang said. You need to close roads, for instance. Organizing a marathon is hard work, Ren Wen, chairperson of event organizer Wisdom Sports, told Caixin. Many local governments have no experience with organizing large-scale sporting events, which puts a lot of pressure on the commercial organizer. However, local governments certainly don't lack enthusiasm. Out of 26 government departments, 25 will come talk to you. The only one that won't is the agriculture department, Ren told Caixin. Every planning meeting is attended by at least 100 government employees, she said. Why do governments do this? The main reason is publicity, Wang said. Most of the money earned in sports comes from peripheral activities rather than the actual sporting event. So when I organize a competition, it comes with additional benefits, whether it's greater brand recognition, tourism, or something else.
The Xiamen International Marathon, for instance, added 462 million yuan, or 67.9 million U.S. dollars, to its namesake city's economy in 2015, according to figures from its organizers. A significant portion of the benefits come from sports tourism. Most participants at marathons in major cities like Beijing and Shanghai are from out of town, according to a Northeast Securities report. In China's less densely populated inland regions, the effect on the local economy is especially prominent. Ever since Lanzhou, the provincial capital of Gansu, began hosting its own marathon in 2011, it has seen tourist numbers increase by an average of 15% every year. Before marathons became popular, the sports departments of local governments were all struggling to raise money. But now things have changed, a sports industry insider told Caixin. For race sponsors, a marathon is essentially a 42-kilometer sales gallery, where thousands of participants and audience members provide a unique marketing opportunity. But many brands and investors are more interested in the indirect effects of the running craze rather than actual competition. Running gives people reasons to spend money all year long, Wang said. If you're a runner, the registration fee is the least of your expenses. Travel, accommodation, equipment, and health account for far more. That's why the arena capital chose to invest in Joyrun, a running app that boasts over 20 million users, a number that dwarfs the 2.8 million signups for China Athletics Association registered events last year. Simply comparing the numbers will tell you where the business opportunities are bigger, Wang said. Stumbling blocks. It may have grown rapidly in recent years, but China's running scene is still relatively undeveloped. The lack of standardized operating procedures and professional organizing staff are serious concerns for race hosts and participants alike. Right now, there is still a relative absence of fitness and health monitoring within the country. Beijing Xinsaidian Sports Investment CEO Xu Linzhou told Caixin, pointing to cases of marathoners suddenly collapsing during races due to previously undetected heart conditions. Hudong Sports's He said that the absence of standards is also a problem. Some companies see a commercial opportunity and think all they need is a few people holding a meeting, inviting a sponsor, and securing a venue to hold a race. But this results in wildly inconsistent race standards, He said. A large-scale sporting event like a marathon requires extremely detailed planning, but organizing teams in China's nascent sports industry find it hard to get everything right, Wisdom Sports's Ren said. There are too few people in the country with comprehensive knowledge of sports. Since the state council did away with mandatory government approval for commercial mass sporting events, all local marathons are required to do is register with the China Athletics Association. Local governments, race organizers, and the Athletics Association are in an ongoing discussion over how to standardize competitions across the country. The association has general guidelines, like those distinguishing between 5K, 10K, half, and full marathons. But what standards, preparation, and operation of races should achieve are up to the individual operator, Ren said. We don't want to go from having 328 races a year all across the country to having everything come to a halt because of a negative incident caused by mismanagement. He added. From business and tech, WeChat widens crackdown on celebrity gossip by April Ma. Beijing, WeChat. China's most popular social networking app, on which millions of original articles are created, read, and shared daily, has recently shut down dozens of widely followed accounts in accordance with the demands of internet regulators. Tencent Holdings Limited, the internet giant that operates WeChat, followed orders from the Guangdong branch of the Cyberspace Administration of China (CAC) and closed 32 WeChat subscription accounts beginning Thursday. 
Among the accounts closed was that of Harper's Bazaar and the celebrity Gossip Weekly owned by Southern Metropolis, one of the nation's largest media groups. Internet regulators said they're only attempting to weed out defamatory content and protect individuals' privacy. Gejia, an internet consultant in Beijing, believes the series of closures should come as little surprise as state media Xinhua News Agency and People's Daily have been vociferous in their disapproval of the nation's immense interest in prying into the private lives of celebrities. People's Daily has issued a series of cutting retorts about readers' voracious appetite for gossip after several celebrity cheating scandals dominated headlines this year. It even penned an editorial in April, urging readers not to worry themselves over the private lives of celebrities, and in May, it deplored the rowdiness of entertainment news after paparazzi-uncovered events led to endless analyses and commentary on other sites. Other state media have also long frowned upon the quality and content of online entertainment sites. Global Times editor Hu Xijin chided netizens' obsession with entertainment and gossip-driven events in a podcast in August when reports of actor Wang Baoqiang's divorce won more coverage and attention than China's performance at the Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. Why does China have a disproportionately large appetite for gossip, he asked during the show. Tencent was asked to seal the accounts, quote, in compliance with the law, unquote, and to, quote, take effective measures to clamp down on celebrity news deemed vulgar and ostentatious, unquote, according to a statement published by the local CAC on Saturday. The company declined comment on the matter. Though many dedicated followers of these accounts have mourned the banning of sources of entertaining tongue-in-cheek gossip and writing, others think the shutdowns are well-deserved. Content creators shouldn't just scratch their readers' every itch, said Zongning, a blogger who runs his own WeChat subscription account. Some accounts cater to the darker sides of human nature to get more followers, and their values are not worth espousing. Also among those targeted in the clampdown are content creators that have won tens of millions of yuan in venture capital investment. Dusha Movie, a publisher of film critiques and recommendations that was last valued at over 300 million yuan, or $44 million, owned one of the accounts that were taken down. The startup, whose Chinese title meant Vicious Tongue, was among the first companies that Bertelsmann Asia Investments took a yuan-denominated stake in. Sources said Dusha's account may have been found at fault for frequently recommending and sharing download links to banned films and television series deemed obscene or overly violent by film censors. Zong believes that this may signify the end of the golden age of content-based entrepreneurship. The crackdown has been swift, harsh, and left little room for remedies, said Ge, who is convinced the accounts were targeted because their overall frivolous and gossipy tone displeased authorities rather than because of the site's particular subject matter. Its purpose is to put many of the ideologies and popular culture back in line and stem the further spread of these values, he said. The move comes less than two weeks after the nation's first cybersecurity law and an updated version of Internet News Information Service Regulations came into effect on June 1st. Internet companies such as Weibo, Chinese equivalent of Twitter, and Sequoia Capital-backed news app Toutiao were summoned by the Beijing division of CAC last week and told to close social media accounts owned by paparazzi reporters and groups. Entertainment circles shouldn't be confused with gossip circles, People's Daily said in an editorial on Thursday. This is unlikely to be the end of it, Ge said. Ubiquitously shared content mongering health advice or ill-based stock and investment tips may be next in line, he added. From Business and Tech, Classic Dictionary Gets Lectured for Fee-Charging App by Yang Ge. Beijing. One of China's most legendary dictionaries is trying to put a price on knowledge, sparking a lively online debate 
after its publisher launched an app that charges for word lookups and other services. Publisher Commercial Press had no idea of the controversy it would create this week when it launched an app version of its Xinhua Dictionary, which is not affiliated with the official Xinhua News Agency. The volume has been published continuously since the 1950s, and its telltale red binding is nationally recognized. Commercial Press launched the app in an announcement on its website, noting the smartphone offering was backed by the world's most circulated dictionary ever, with more than 600 million copies sold over time. The launch featured screenshots of the app's various functions, including a wide range of lookup and pronunciation capabilities and the ability to share words with friends. But the screenshot that captured everyone's attention, which wasn't mentioned on the promotional page, was a price list of all services beyond the two-word maximum lookup each day in the free edition. After depleting that allotment, users are prompted to sign up for the app's paid packages starting at 40 yuan, $5.88, and as much as 488 yuan. While most people are accustomed to paying for real dictionaries, the thought of paying for a virtual edition created outrage among some people who read about the product on the internet. Some people defended the fees, but others pointed out that the starting price for the paid online edition was well above the 29.4 yuan for the traditional paper one. I suggest they make it free, which will help the popularization of Chinese dictionaries, said one web surfer named Mingyue Shanren. What's more, this kind of free online dictionary is quite common. Many people like the Xinhua Dictionary for sentimental reasons because they've used it since they were young. Another web surfer named Xiaoyu Tian sounded a more philosophical note. Is knowledge something you can really buy with money, he said. The ruckus prompted commercial press to present its own explanation, saying the app had taken three years to develop. Making a static paper dictionary and a dynamic digital one is quite different. We hope this dynamic digital version is just the beginning, the spokesperson told the Beijing Youth Daily. It can be updated constantly and offers many more services catering to an individual's needs. But the explanation fell on deaf ears for many who are used to getting all their apps and other internet content for free, including one web server named Weifang Budal. They're a bunch of smelly bastards. 40 yuan is too expensive, he said. Business and Tech China Caught in Claws of New Food Fad Piping Hot Crawfish by Huang Ziyi and Li Rongde China's voracious appetite for crawfish has spawned a multi-billion dollar industry and tripled production of farmed crawfish from 2007 and 2016 to 850,000 tons. Total output of freshwater crustacean, including those caught in the wild, reached 899,100 tons last year, and consumption rose by nearly one-third over the past two years to 879,300 tons in 2016. The booming crawfish industry, valued last year at 146.6 billion yuan, or 21.58 billion U.S. dollars, employed over 5 million people on fish farms and in food processing plants and restaurants, serving only sizzling crawfish dishes, according to a report released by the Ministry of Agriculture on Monday. Crawfish, also known as crayfish or freshwater lobster, is an alien species brought to China in the 1920s. They made their way from the U.S., where they are a staple in Cajun cuisine in Louisiana, through Hawaii to Japan as food for bullfrogs in the early 1900s, and brought to Nanjing by traders in 1929, according to a 2015 article on World of Chinese, a website dedicated to Chinese literature and culture. 
Crawfish were long regarded as little more than a nuisance by Chinese rice farmers because the crustaceans ruined rice seedlings and dug tunnels through ridges on paddy fields, causing water loss. But adventurous farmers who found new ways of cooking the hard-shelled fish two decades ago started raising crawfish in their paddy fields. Over time, this cheaper substitute for lobster became a nationwide delicacy and is usually enjoyed with a beer on a hot summer evening. Crawfish farmers in the central province of Hubei led the charge in farming the species, turning out 489,000 tons last year, or over 57% of the total output in China in 2016. Four other provinces, Jiangxi, Anhui, Jiangsu, and Hunan, came in second through fifth, respectively, in terms of crawfish output, according for more than 42% of the country's production between them, the ministry said. China's restaurant-goers, especially the young foodies, have found themselves in the claws of the crayfish mania that has swept across the country in recent years. In central Hubei province alone, over 15,000 exclusive restaurants are serving crawfish dishes, earning 33.3 billion yuan in total revenues last year, up by 30% from a year earlier, according to the report. More than 20 special crawfish dishes have been developed in Nanjing, Jiangsu province, and restaurants serving them have made over 10 billion yuan in 2016, a 25% increase in sales from the previous year. Hubei Zhouheya Company Limited, a food giant in the central city of Wuhan known for its cooked and marinated duck meat products, launched a unit to sell ready-to-eat crawfish products earlier this month in an attempt to carve out a slice of the growing crawfish pie. However, the industry has been dogged by fears of potential health risks linked to consuming contaminated crawfish products. More than a dozen Nanjing restaurants came down with half disease in 2010, allegedly after eating crawfish, local media reported. But government investigators later said they couldn't link the infection to possible contamination in crawfish. One cause of half disease, an infection which causes muscle decay and could lead to kidney failure, is consuming fish contaminated by toxic chemicals. The Agriculture Ministry said that improvements in five areas, including crawfish processing and disease control, were needed to ensure the healthy development of the industry. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Seneca Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories by the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Li Xin and Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Ufei for the music. Be sure to check out the Seneca Podcast, the current affairs show I host with Jeremy Goldcorn, and follow the news from China daily at SubChina. Sign up for a free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.